It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrove, and David Feldman is out today. But it wouldn't be a show without a Feldman, so we have Hannah Feldman as my co-host. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Steve. And, of course, it really wouldn't be a show without the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. On today's show, we're going to ask the question, is it possible for a corporation to be socially responsible and still compete in the marketplace? Our first guest, Toby Heaps, would say yes. In fact, he would actually go further and argue that companies with sustainable environmental policies actually perform better than their short-sighted competitors. Mr. Heaps is co-founder and CEO of Corporate Knights, and Knights is spelled K-N-I-G-H-T-S, as in what you'd find sitting at a round table. Corporate Knights is a leading sustainable economy, media, and research company based in Canada, and Mr. Heaps is editor-in-chief of Corporate Knights magazine. The research team at Corporate Knights develops global sustainability rankings, research reports, and financial product ratings based on corporate sustainability performance. Every year, they rank the 50 best corporate citizens. Corporate Knights maintains an editorial focus on climate change, responsible investing, and the ideas, actions, and innovations that shape a sustainable economy. We look forward to speaking with Mr. Heaps and highlighting some good corporate citizens. Then we welcome back Dr. Bandy Lee. Dr. Lee is the psychiatrist who first sounded the alarm about former President Donald Trump's malignant narcissism. She was the editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. Now, despite two impeachments and four criminal indictments, Donald Trump is far and away leading the polls to again become the Republican Party's nominee for president. Is Donald Trump just another candidate, or should the media be covering Trump differently? As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our indefatigable corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, we spent a lot of time on this program talking about corporate bad boys. Let's hear about what it takes to be a good guy. Hannah? Toby Heaps is the CEO and co-founder of Corporate Nights and editor-in-chief of Corporate Nights magazine. He spearheaded the first global ranking of the world's 100 most sustainable corporations in 2005, and in 2007 coined the term clean capitalism. Toby has been published in the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Globe and Mail, and is a regular guest speaker on CBC. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Toby Heaps. Thanks, Hannah. And I want to add to Hannah's introduction, Toby, that this is all Canadian. You are a Canadian. This is a Canadian publication that has a worldwide impact. It's a 65-page magazine, beautifully designed and full of graphics, clearly written, very little jargon, and it defines clean capitalism this way, quote, an economic system in which prices incorporate social, economic, and ecological benefits and costs, and people know the full impacts of their marketplace actions, unquote, which is a pretty high standard. And four times a year, the magazine is an insert in the Wall Street Journal, Toronto's Globe and Mail newspaper, and the Washington Post. So people, when they get the print edition, they get this magazine inside the newspaper. How's that worked out? It's been nice. It's sort of wrapped in a nice bow with trust. People trust the Washington Post mostly. A lot of people trust the Wall Street Journal. A lot of people trust the Globe and Mail. And 
there's various bars you have to go in. I think, I believe we're the only third party sort of publication that is carried in the Washington Post. So that, that says something It took a little while to get in there. And it's a nice way to be able to reach mainstream decision makers who are really trying to target. I think most people don't wake up in the morning thinking how they can screw up the world. Most people want to leave the world a little bit better than they found it. And a lot of people are lacking information on what to do. And they're lacking feedback loops with rewards for doing the right thing sometimes. And also just lacking awareness about other parts of the network they can connect into other parts of the movement, which is a pretty significant full-blown movement now. And I'm speaking of the sort of clean energy economy movement, the fossil fuel divestment movement coming from the other side as well. And it's, it's been kind of interesting that the hypothesis we had at the beginning was to Anne Frank's wisdom in, in the Second World War when she was holed up in the attic in Amsterdam. She wrote that in spite of everything, she believed that people are, are really good at heart. And I still believe that's true. And I, I think I used to be optimistic in spite of reality in many instances. And increasingly, I'm optimistic because of reality as I see so many good things speeding up. We have a lot of skeptical listeners when they hear about making corporations responsible. Other than tough regulatory enforcement, prosecution, breaking up quasi-monopolies, they're very skeptical. But you reverberate off of something that the famous corporate guru, Peter Drucker, once said, he said, what gets measured gets managed. And that's sort of the mantra of Corporate Nights, your magazine. When I heard that, I recalled that before the Department of Labor was created in Washington, D.C., early in the 20th century, there was very little organized data about workers. And when the Department of Labor was established, one of the first things it did was it started collecting information about unemployment, about poverty, about worker injuries. And the moment the data was assembled, there was more publicity. Uh, Congress took note. Legislation was passed. Regulations were issued. Far less than what I would have wanted, but it all started from these measurements. And that's what your magazine is famous for. Can you tell us about your 100 best this and hundred best that and how you make it concrete. And then by putting out best practices, you put pressure on the laggard corporations. You give people a chance to reject the laggard corporation when they make purchases and reward the better ones and other similar feedback. Can you elaborate on all that? How'd you come to the yardsticks, which aren't easy for determining the hundred best thing and give us the description of the various hundred best. Sure. So it's a good question. How does one come up with a list of the 100 best corporate citizens, 100 most sustainable corporations in the world? And we've refined an approach over 20 years, and our intent has always been pure. We're not looking for companies that are making the most money. We're looking for companies that are making the most positive impact on society, the social impact, and, and on the environment. So those are the only two things that we're, we're considering. And we're not looking for fluff. And we're not looking for things that are easy to game. We're not looking for policies that are maybe good management tools. We're looking for material things that you can measure that matter. And so we put half the emphasis in our 25 indicator system, which can be downloaded, Global 100, Corporate Nights methodology, come straight up. Half of the emphasis in terms of weight is put on the company's operations. Half of the emphasis is put on how the company makes its money in terms of is it making its money from products and services that have a clear demarcated benefit for the environment or or for society, affordable housing, electric cars, green energy, sustainable plant proteins. And then we're looking at also how does the company invest its money? So we're looking at the money side as half, half of the weight. How does it make its money? 
How does it invest its money? What percentage of its capital expenditures, research development and acquisitions is going into sustainable products and services is defined by us, which has been a great sort of piece of work that we've been engaged in with many others around the world, 350 organizations to come up with an integrated new language that defines what is green, what is sustainable and what is not at an industry by industry level. So we have the indicators on how does the company behave. We kick out a bunch of companies that have dark red flag behaviors, companies involved in cluster bombs, companies involved in deep deforestation, companies involved in for-profit prisons. That takes out about 10% of the universe when we take out all the sort of dark red flags. We then look at their operations. So we're looking at what percentage of their cash tax is aggressive as a ratio of their profits. And how does that relate to their their peers? We downgrade the companies that are not paying their, their taxes because that's the price we pay for civilization. We look at the diversity of their board and their executives, gender, and racial. We look at the safety records, injuries, fatalities. We look at their pollution, carbon. We look at their energy use, their water use. We look at their toxic emissions, and we have industry-specific weights that go to every industry to you know account for the fact that how much water a bank uses doesn't really matter, but it does matter with a, a cement company or a nuclear power company. And then we put the emphasis of, with the weights where the material impacts of that industry are. And then for each company, we score it on each indicator relative to its industry peers, and then we weight it according to its industry. That gets us a score. And in doing that, we're able to come up with out of a list of almost 7,000 companies globally, all the publicly traded companies with the market, with revenues of over $1 billion US, we're able to come up with the 100 most sustainable companies in the world. So we've been doing this since 2005. We launch it each year, coincident with the World Economic Forum in Davos. And we've been tracking it as a financial index with a third-party calculation agent, Solactive, based out of Frankfurt. And I was curious from the get-go, if we figure out who the 100 most sustainable companies are in the world on a sector sort of neutral basis, so we have a similar exposure to what the investment benchmark would have in terms of its sector exposure, would it outperform financially over time? Because we have an imperfect economy with policies that still slant the playing field, subsidies that still slant the playing field towards the dirty and the monopolistic and the corrupt economy in many respects. And so I wasn't sure, I hoped that would be the case, but I wasn't sure it would be the case. And it's been really interesting over 19, almost 19 years of live performance, we've seen that the most sustainable companies outlive the less sustainable companies, the average company by a factor of two to one, and they outperform them on an annualized basis by over 1% per year, which over the course of almost 19 years is, is quite substantial in the investment world. And so it's been really, I guess, gratifying and inspiring to see that even in the imperfect system that we operate in, the companies that are doing better on taxes, doing better on sustainable products and services, those companies can not only deliver more value for us as people and, and for the planet, but they can also outperform. It's not always a win-win wonderland, but it's been a really interesting to see that that trend take hold. And, and that trend has widened where the, the most sustainable companies over the past three years are now significantly outperforming the average company. And I think that's because we're seeing the sustainable economy, whether it's electric cars, renewable power, plant protein, smart and green buildings. These sectors are becoming multi, multi hundred billion dollar sectors, and they're really driving the biggest piece of the pie of economic growth and the companies that are catalyzing on that and also showing a balanced way of doing business are thriving. None of these companies are angels. You know, Some of them are steel recyclers like Schnitzer Steel, which recently changed its name based, had some issues in Oakland and got sued, I think, by the Oakland A's for some pollution from its recycled steel plant. But they are making 100% recycled steel with renewable power. Do you have almost half the directors that are women are paying their taxes and have dramatically reduced their waste and their pollution and are doing really, really well economically too? And then you have companies like Orsted out of Denmark, which decade or so ago was the one of the dirtiest companies in Europe. 
huge coal pollution. They made a decision at their board level to do a, a radical U-turn and then go all in investing in offshore wind turbines. And they thought it would take 30 years to do the transition. It took about six years to get most of it done, transform their business, increase their value by factor of four when their peers were flat and became the largest offshore wind producer in the world. And you see these stories happening all over the world, whether it's from the oil companies or the, the electric power companies, fossil power companies, or food companies or real estate companies. And the ones who are going all in investing big in the green economy and the more sustainable economy are more often than not the ones who are, are hitting the biggest numbers financially. Well, you have an, in your recent issue uh, an article on page 46, which is titled Best 50 Corporate Citizens in Canada. And I have three questions on that. What do you do if you have a very good corporate citizen, but it's a very small company, say with a million dollar sales? Do you have a cutoff? And second, give us the names of some of the top companies. And then third, have you ever thought of a reverse disincentive? where you say the worst 50 corporate companies in Canada or around the world. So when we, we look at companies for the most sustainable companies or best 50, we're looking generally at companies, large companies. So over a billion dollars in revenue. We do have something now called the Future 50, which we started in Canada. And we're looking for companies who have the highest green stable companies who make the majority of their money from green or sustainable products and have had the biggest growth in terms of their revenue or, or capital raised over the last two rounds. So that includes many companies of less than a million or not much more than a million of revenue. But our rankings are mostly focused on the large companies. It's a resource question. It's quite an exercise. It takes about 10,000 hours a year to do the ranking of the, uh, the 100 most sustainable companies, and that's a pool of just under 7,000. But we do recognize that the small, medium-sized companies are, are really important. In many ways, those are the ones that are pioneering the standards, and that's why we've come up with the Future 50, and we're looking to expand that. In terms of some of the leading names, Schneider Electric is a really cool company. They do industrial machinery out of Europe, based in France, you know, not a household name necessarily, but they made a decision to become the sort of sustainable solution provider to all the major industries, whether it's cement or steel or oil and gas, people who use this big machinery. And their goal is to electrify and decarbonize everything. And they've had tremendous growth, really inspiring sort of old economy kind of kind of company. It's not a dot-com kind of thing, but really inspiring to see that. They have companies like Neste Oil, which it's now called Neste, based out of Finland, with a major sort of Northern European refiner of fossil fuel oil. And then about a decade ago, they made a decision to make a major investment in sustainable aviation fuels. They saw where the market was going, and their market value has appreciated more than almost any other company of its size or bigger in the oil and gas sector. They now make the majority of their money on sustainable aviation fuels that come from waste residue and waste products like cooking oil from McDonald's kind of thing. And they're investing the vast majority, 85% of their capital expenditure each year in growing those businesses. So it shows how a fossil fuel company can, in a relatively short period of time, completely change its business model and prosper economically, which is which is pretty interesting. When you go down the Global 100 list, you can Google Global 100 sustainable companies. There's a stories like this all along the way. It's you know there's Avita Soy, which is a Hong Kong-based company, a smaller company, billion-dollar company, but smaller compared to some of these these other companies. And they're plowing in and making huge investments in plant protein and, and converting the animal milk products to plant protein with huge presence in China, where it really counts. It's interesting. China is one of the only countries out of major countries that have made the diet a part of their climate strategy, recognizing that they need to convert their animal-based diet, substantial portions of it, 
to plant-based because it's more efficient and much, much lower carbon. And so that's a company that's kind of capitalizing on that trend. Now, there's companies like McCormick, which owns Frank's Hot Sauce and probably have their spices in your spice cabinet based not that far from, from DC in Maryland. And they made a business model where they, they set up cooperatives for their, they have growers of spices all around the world from Nigeria to Sri Lanka to Madagascar. And they go in there and they set up cooperatives with the farmers so they can sell directly to the company and not have to go through three or four middlemen and get a pittance of the actual value of the spices they're harvesting, whether it's vanilla or cinnamon or pepper. And it's been really great for their business model, more resilient supply chain because their workers are making more money. Doesn't necessarily cost the company more, just a smart way of doing things. They work a lot with USAID and, and other entities getting these things set up. And they make great spices. They're not focused on salt. Things are really enlivened foods and bring them together. And so it's good for people and they figure out a neat business model where it's kind of win-win, where the workers can get way more benefits. And what about doing it reverse, the worst 50? Yeah. So that's kind of fun. I like to play on both sides. And so I'd say we kind of take about a 80% focus on positive. People sort of see us as the solutions folks, but I think it's important to keep people honest as well. And so from time to time, we'll do a deep dive. But when we do a deep dive, I really like to hit hard and get results because we're putting the sort of our name out there. So Example, recently, we did a deep dive into the tax avoidance of the big banks in Canada, which is was off the scale. It was just, it was, you know, without shame and in running into the billions and billions and billions of dollars per year. And we exposed it in excruciating detail with forensic accountants. We received threats when we were preparing the article over six months. We partnered with a major publication, the Toronto Star, for some legal cover as well. So it was a co-production. And then we published it, and the government, is, as it does, doesn't usually do everything it needs to do, but it closed down about $2 billion of annual loopholes. So it's been a bit of a tally for the banks. We've noticed our advertising revenue took a bit of a hit in that sector, which is, which is fine. That's lots of sectors out there. We've done rankings like the Toxic 50, where we look at the 50 most toxic companies in terms of what they're putting into water and air and the toxicity of, of, of those chemicals times the weight that they're putting in. And it was really interesting. One of the forestry companies we uncovered was called Abbott TV at the time. It was the biggest toxic water polluter in Canada. And when the story came out, I guess it got to the board of directors. They got it in the Globe and Mail. It became an agenda item at the, at the board meeting and they allocated $150 million to do the retrofit that they needed to do to stop the toxic water pollution at, at their pulp and paper plant. And so we, those things happen. And I think it's, it's useful to, to focus on who's not doing well. And we've done divestment rankings to show which foundations and which pension funds are losing the most money from not getting out of fossil fuels. And that, of course, over the last couple of years hasn't been the theme, just given the geopolitical situation. But we looked at BlackRock, for example, over a 10-year period leading up into 2021 by staying invested in fossil fuels, as opposed to taking the money out of fossil fuels just in their equity portfolio and spreading it to all the other stocks they own, the Googles, the Microsofts. They had a trillion dollars of extra returns that they, they missed out on is the result of staying invested. And of course, you know, there's lots of, we can unpack that and peel that onion back a bit. But sometimes if you focus on the losses or or the bad things, it can drive a bit of a, of a reconsideration. But our, our main focus is, is trying to find where the good magic is happening and to shine a light on it. And increasingly the solutions in the economy are growing faster than the problems. And so if that trend continues, the problems kind of dwindle in, in relevance, but we do need to keep an eye on them for sure because they're still big problems. We've been talking with Toby Heaps, founder, publisher, CEO of Corporate Knights out of Canada. Let's go specific, Toby. Let's talk about three companies, each one a little different. Interface Corporation, Apple Corporation, and NVIDIA. Interface Corporation, to my knowledge, is the first company 
It's based out of Atlanta, and it's the leading manufacturer of carpet tiles in the world with plants in the U.S. and around the world. It's the first company that declared that it went carbon neutral in 2019, based very much on the leadership of Ray Anderson, an engineer who was its founder and CEO until he passed away a few years ago. What do you think of that? Is that in your ranking at all, the Interface Corporation out of Atlanta, Georgia? Yeah. Well, Interface, first of all, really inspiring company. Ray Anderson was almost a spiritual leader in the corporate movement, and we all miss him a great deal. He set new standards, new cultural standards and new norms, I think, for many business leaders to think about their role as citizens, not just as as stewards for the financial shareholders. And I hope that will be his legacy. And it's been interesting to see Interface continue to be a great leader. They've been just a little bit too small, but they have crossed the billion-dollar annual revenue threshold. And so we do reach out and measure them. And I'm, and I'm hoping this year, I know we've been paying kind of close attention. I, I remember talking with Ray about this when we first started the ranking. He's like, we're going to get big enough so we can make the ranking. And now they're big enough. So I hope that when the ranking results are finished this year, that the numbers check out and we have interface in there. But they make this beautiful tile carpet. We have it all in Corporate Knight's office. You can sleep on it. It's from the circular economy. They recycle it. It's really functional. Great people work there. They really treat their people. It's not just a sort of token top-down thing. And, you know, that spear in the heart that he got when he read Paul Hawkins' book, it just really shows the spiritual transformation and the possibility for change just when a single leader gets something. But I think the big problem with Ray Anderson and Interface, specifically Ray Anderson, is there was only one Ray Anderson. And I hope that many more will be spawned and we'll see the ripples and the waves over the coming years from the initial sort of strokes that he made. A fitting tribute to Ray Anderson. And part of his legacy are three wonderful books that he's written. And he also made hundreds of speeches all over the country and world showing what could be done. He just reconverted his whole company after he heard Paul Hawkins speak and read Paul Hawkins' book, as you pointed out. So he does have a legacy as well. And the second one is Apple, which certainly is big enough for your stipulation. What do you do with Apple, which doesn't have many polluting plants in the U.S., for example? But the pollution is in China, where they have a million workers under a Taiwanese company contracted to put out their computers and iPhones. And there have been horrific stories of the bad treatment of these workers and how the company has nets on the fifth and eighth floors or so of the factory to catch people who are so down and out that they try to commit suicide. Yeah, the the worker situation in those pressure cooker factories, you know, trying to deliver, especially in Christmas rushes, is really worrying. And we do monitor, we look at the severe human rights violations, and we look at the worker rights violations, we look at fatalities, and we look at injuries. And Apple does pretty good on the fatalities and, and injuries. It's normalized by number of workers, and you can imagine they have a large workforce, so there's still people dying. And, you know, some people think one person dying is too many, and and every life matters a lot. We do use the Norwegian Sovereign Pension Fund, which has an amazing research resource where they they go and in minute detail analyze the legitimately severe human rights and worker rights violations that companies make. And they have a committee that goes and they do visits and due diligence and they make this all publicly available. And when they when they decide a company has crossed that red line, it's not all companies, it has to be a pretty severe, egregious behavior or misconduct. They'll then put it on the sort of no-go list and they'll publish it on their website the acronym is N-B-I-M, but it's the Norway Sovereign Wealth Fund. And so we, we use that, and Apple is, is not currently on that. They do have many controversies. They're not disqualified from the get-go, 
And what's been really interesting with Apple to see them, you know, it's a multi-trillion dollar company, you know, the largest, I think it's the largest company in the world right now by market value. What's really interesting to look at Apple is they've had the environment on their agenda. As you know, Al Gore has been on their board, longest serving director for 20 years, been hammering that down. But more recently, after they acquired Lisa Jackson as their chief sustainability officer, they started to get a lot more serious about the materials that go into their phone. Is the aluminum coming from China, coal, or is it coming from renewable sources with new processes from Quebec? The latter is true now. And they've really tried to drill down into the real impacts that they make you know, in terms of the resources that go into the phone and the energy efficiency of the phone and, and the recyclability of the phone. I would argue they have much work to do on the right to repair still, but they've made great progress and compared to other manufacturer devices, when you look at the various standards that their phones hit, their leading edge and the refurbishment business they have is in full swing, a significant piece of their overall business. And so on that piece, they're doing pretty good on their supply chain. They're doing well on the environmental piece. I'd say, as you pointed out, there's progress and a lot of challenges on the on the social and the worker piece that come with working in those, those countries for sure. But most interesting for me is when you look at a company like Apple or HP, about 90 8% of its environmental impact comes through its supply chain. It's not necessarily, it's the emissions from the aluminum. It's not their, like, you know, how much electricity they're, they're using at their headquarters in California. But where even more impact comes is what they do with their political power. Companies like Apple and Google Alphabet, they are so powerful in Washington, D.C., in broad Washington, D.C., in Brussels, around the world. They have armies of government relations folks. They employ sometimes in you know, the case of Facebook, ex-deputy prime ministers as their chief lobbyists. And they have such power. And traditionally, they've been focused on things like antitrust and various digital issues. But increasingly, because they recognize that it's both a, a huge issue for their employees. And Bill Wheels done tremendous work with Climate Voices, California, really kind of harnessing the power of the employees of these companies who want climate and want bold climate action and climate policy. And these companies have such political power that if they just put their finger on the scale, sometimes it's enough to get something like the Inflation Reduction Act, which had a lot of flaws, but also had a lot of good things in there, get that thing through that was hanging in the cusp and for a while didn't look like it was going anywhere. And so now Apple and Google have both started to, in a concerted way, use their corporate power to advance bolder climate policy. And it's an essential, essential counterweight, you know, through lobbies like the chamber, which traditionally are captured by the, the narrow rump of fossil fuel in, interests. And they misrepresent the voice of business and advocate for laggard policies that, that try and hold back the growth of the clean energy economy. And now you have companies like Apple, who on many instances, both in public and in private, are now putting their finger on the scale to get bolder clean energy policies. I was at a meeting I was hosting in New York this week and Monday, and there were representatives from all these companies there at a quite senior level discussing what they're doing. Not all of it there is, is all in the public. Some of it can be traced and stuff. But it's really interesting to see these nonprofits like Influence Map, which tracks how corporate power is used to influence climate policy and how major industry associations can distort that. They have a ranking of the leaders on this. They also they also rate the laggards, you know, who gets an F all the way to A to F. It's really, really great outfit, sort of like halfway between J. Edgar Hoover and Santa Claus on, on, on climate but, lobbying. But Toby, they're still responsible for a million surf-like workers in China under their contractor. And how do you crank that in? Yeah, the worker issue is, is a big issue. So, I mean, we, we do look at their injury rates, the lost time incidents, which are you know self-reported. And we do look at the fatalities per full-time equivalent employee. And they do come out strong on both those metrics when you normalize it by the number of employees. But there are issues. And, and we do look at the major controversies. And if, if Apple was to be put on the no-go zone, by the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, 
then they would be ineligible for a ranking. So that's always something that they're managing and it is a tension. You know, Amazon, for example, they've crossed the red line from their various worker practices and, and are on the no-go zone. And so they're not eligible for a rankings. Apple has problems, similar magnitude, but not quite at the pitch that Amazon has. And so what about the pay of the workers? The pay of the workers is, you know, we look, one of the main metrics we look at, which is considered quite controversial by companies, is we look at the CEO to average worker pay. So we're looking at all of their employees, what the average pay is of all their employees around the world. And then looking at that as a ratio to the CEO and the CEO, you know, Tim Cook is, is getting a fairly handsome paycheck. We're looking at the options, the, the full value, the compensation remuneration for the CEO. And the higher that, that ratio, the CEO to average worker ratio is, the lower the score of the company. And within Apple's sector, there's a fairly high weight on that indicator because there is a worrying sort of spread between the executive to worker pay ratios. So that's something that we take into account and the company gets penalized when they have a, a high CO to average worker pay. A year ago, Tim Cook was being paid $833 a minute on a 40-hour week, not counting benefits. And their charitable giving as a percent is one of the lowest of any major corporation in the United States. Do you crank in? Their charitable giving is about two-tenths of one percent. And under federal tax law, they can give up to 10% of their adjusted gross and deduct it. Do you crank in the charitable giving issue? No, we intentionally excluded charitable giving from the get-go. And not that there's anything wrong with it, but traditionally the idea of corporate citizenship, corporate sustainability was conflated with this sort of how much money are you giving to charity? And our whole thrust of, has always been, what are you doing with your core business? How are you impacting the world with your core products and service? Are you paying your taxes? Are you paying your workers? And we really you know, kind of shied away. Some companies do give as much as 1% of their pre-tax profits. Apple is, is at the far low end of that. But it's, mm -hmm. it's not a, we put a weight on what percentage of their profits is paid in cash tax over a five-year period. Right. We look at that and put a lot more right. emphasis. And how do you get data on something like this, which Samsung has chided Apple, the recycling of their products when they're disposed, iPhones and computers, and they're taken apart by workers, and it's a very toxic work exposure. How do you deal with that when there's virtually no data on that? Yeah, it's tough. Like, we can't see everything that's going on. Increasingly, there's you know we use millions of data points that we believe to be credible. We partner with over two dozen mostly nonprofits that have specific expertise on monitoring different of these issues that we look at who come up with the sort of the dark red flag companies, whether it's deforestation that's being done through satellite and looking at where the goods are going through the supply chain so we can tackle them. But some of these issues, you know, we rely on the dark red flag. So we're, we're looking for this to kind of rise to the level where it becomes significant, almost indictment where the company can can be put on the hit list. We do also track 122 different sources of fines, penalties, and settlements from different jurisdictions, whether it's OSHA in the US or EPA or equivalents around the world. And we have this really amazing, actually, researcher that's based out of Missouri. He spends about half his life putting this all together and updating it every day. Russell Mulkyper, I think, first discovered him. That's how I discovered him. And we use that now. We're the main user of his data, and we we um, we employ him to collect this data. And so we we know when a company fines, penalties, and settlements reaches 1% of their revenue, they're put on the hit list, and they can no longer be eligible for the ranking. And then we also deduct up to 5% of their total score depending on how the ratio of their fines, penalties, and settlements uh, ranks relative to their peers. 
And so that's something that becomes real. As you, as you know, there's there's lots of stories out there. A big company is going to have all sorts of smear stories. Some of them are going to have truth. Some of them are not going to. And we don't want to just be doing a beauty contest or subject to the latest headline. We're trying to do something that's reasonably rooted in evidence and can be defensible and can be considered fair. And we recognize that none of the companies, none of the big companies that we rank are perfect. They all have major issues, which is kind of the nature of a the human condition. Yeah, needless to say, how do the companies react to you? Do they say, ouch? Do they complain if they're not on the list the way universities complain to U.S. News and World Report when they are down in the rankings or the way companies complain to Consumer Reports when they get a negative assessment of their product? What kind of feedback are you getting? Or are they trying to ignore you? And yeah. when you do rank them high, when you do rank them high, we're talking with Toby Heaps, the founder and publisher of a Corporate Nights out of Canada. When they do get a high ranking, do they publicize it in their advertising? And does that worry you at all? I'm sure. I love this question. So they don't ignore us, which is the main thing. We get a lot of flack. And then companies do try to make hay. The ones who make the rankings, a lot of them, most of them do try to make major hay out of it. And many of them are able to, and we're always conscious and watching because, of course, there's reputational risks for us when someone has our imprinter. So let's start with Lockheed Martin. We have many companies that are upset with us because they feel like they're not getting as high a score as they deserve. We have a completely transparent, 100% transparent, rules-based process that anybody can download. You know, It's good evening reading. Don't read it lying down if you want to finish it, but it's, it's in, in excruciating detail. Lockheed Martin was really upset. They felt that we were not counting their sales of weapons as sustainable, and it was a huge error because they're keeping the free world safe from authoritarian regimes, and we should be counting the sales of their weapons as good for society. And they wrote, I mean, I can share it with you by email. I can't believe they put it in writing. It's really quite funny from a senior executive. We have companies like from the forestry industry that are not doing sustainable forestry practices. They have some sort of you know, relatively weak industry certification that's that's not endorsed by environmental groups, and we don't we don't count their revenue from forest products, and they get really really upset at us. On the other side, we now see that many companies really appreciate the attention to detail that we have gone through, the practical attention to detail that we've gone to, and in, in making up this taxonomy, a classification system for what is sustainable in terms of a business activity and what is not in terms of a product, because it gets pretty into the minutiae, you know, is it, what kind of a printer is sustainable? What kind of a dishwasher is sustainable? What kind of a building? It gets into into a lot of minutiae and we've, we've made it quite practical and clear what's in and what's out. Now we have major companies, many $100 billion plus market value companies that use our taxonomy as part of their formal audited accounting procedure to, to track how much of their revenues are sustainable because it's sort of an integrated taxonomy. And we've noticed that this has been really encouraging to see companies like McCormick or Schneider Electric who ranked quite highly number one in the industry or number one overall in the world in the case of Schneider Electric several years ago. They use this as a sort of badge of trust. And when they're going around to these large institutional investors, pension funds, Black Rocks, who all have conviction portfolios where they, they allocate, they go overweight into companies that they believe are on the right side of history and various economic trends. And many of them believe that these sustainability trends are powerful predictors of who's going to win economically. And so when they have this corporate nights and printer, they know that this is legit. This isn't one of these greenwash things that's for sale. Our rankings are not for sale. Everything's 100% transparent. We've been doing it for 20 years. And then it helps them raise money. In many cases, they shift their shareholder base from 5 or 10% sustainable investors to 50 to 60% sustainable investors. And I've, I've heard this from a number of companies. And that gives them the leeway to pursue more long-term visions 
and not be a subject to sort of raiders and the myopic focus on quarterly short-term profits. So it's been really nice to see that. And we hope that that just becomes a sort of more powerful feedback mechanism as, as we push forward. What is the special offer you have for our listeners regarding getting copies of Corporate Nights? Sure. If, if anybody would like to get uh, four free download copies, the digital of the last four issues of Corporate Nights, you can go to corporatenights.com. That's Nights with a K and it's plural, corporatenights.com forward slash Ralph Nader. And then the password is justice, all caps, all capital. And then you'll get a links to the four last issues that we've done. And also if you if you want a link, discount link of half price to subscribe to our, our publication going forward. And that password again, slowly? Justice, just J-U-S-T-I-C-E, all caps. Pretty good word. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Toby Heaps, the founder and publisher of Corporate Nights out of Canada with a global range. And we look forward to the fulfillment of your remaining 98% of your expectations, Toby. Good luck. Thanks, Ralph. We've been speaking with Toby Heaps. We have a link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. And we've arranged a special deal with Corporate Nights for our listeners. You can go to corporatenights.com slash ralphnader and use the discount code JUSTICE for a 100% discount on the last four digital issues. Those who redeem the code will also receive an offer for a discounted print subscription. It's all set up already, so feel free to use it if you'd like to check out the magazine. And as we all know, 100% discount means free. Up next, we welcome back Dr. Bandy Lee to discuss the Republican Party's favorite malignant narcissist. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, September 22, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. A regulator in France has asked that Apple stop selling its iPhone 12 there after it said tests found that the device emits radiation levels exceeding European standards. Apple disputed the finding, saying the device released in 2020 has been certified by international bodies and complies with regulations, the AP reported. The French regulator regulatory agency said in a statement that it expects Apple to deploy all available means to put an end to the non-compliance and that failure to act could result in a product recall. Joel Moskowitz, director of the Center for Family and Community Health at the University of California, Berkeley, pointed to a 2020 meta-analysis that suggested that using cell phones for a cumulative call time of more than 1,000 hours was associated with an increased risk of tumors. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with Hannah Feldman and Ralph. Why is 30% of the country still in love with Donald Trump? Let's ask a doctor. Hannah? Dr. Bandy Lee is a medical doctor, a forensic psychiatrist, and a world expert on violence who taught at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring recently to Columbia and Harvard. She is currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition, an educational organization that assembles mental health experts to collaborate with other disciplines for the betterment of public mental health and public safety. She is the editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President, and Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Dr. Bandy Lee. Thank you very much for having me back. Yeah, welcome back, Bandy. I've always been astonished at the harsh criticism you've received from some members of your own profession, even though many members supported your position in your 
description of Trump's behavior, character, personality, performance, and the retaliatory nature of Yale University, which basically pushed you out where you had been teaching and working for so many years. The reason why I'm puzzled is because many editorial writers, columnists, book writers have said the same thing, but not in psychological or psychiatric language. I mean, Mark Green and I had a withering criticism of Trump on many fronts in our book, Wrecking America, that came out in 2020, exclusively on Donald J. Trump. And so I'd like to open this discussion by referring to a magazine article on you in Mother Jones, September, October 2022 issue, which is subtitled, The Psychiatrist Who Warned Us That Donald Trump Would Unleash Violence was absolutely right, and it's called The Vindication of Bandy Lee. Could you describe what that vindication entailed? Good to talk with you again, Ralph. The article was referring to what happened with the January 6th Capitol attack and then the hearings that came afterward. I, I guess that was the timing of the article. But of course, we've been warning against the dangers that Donald Trump would bring since the publication of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And that's precisely why many of us academics and clinicians who had not spoken publicly before decided that it was our duty, both professional and civic, to speak about the dangers that we saw. And at the same time, we did predict that the most important voices would be silenced in a time of authoritarianism which was the direction we were going with the kinds of mental impairments in a leader that we have had in Donald Trump. If we did not contain him early enough, then what results is authoritarianism or fascism. What is most dismaying is that with all the tools that we had and all the support that we had, you mentioned attacks from within the field. Well, that's what the public is seeing, but there was a medical consensus when we first came out, which was a reason for putting out a book and thousands of mental health professionals joined us in the World Mental Health Coalition. And over 50 members of Congress met with us agreeing that our voice in the mental health profession was important. So even though we were saying the same thing as the general public, it in a sense couldn't just be dismissed as a political opinion or an insult or simple musings of someone who hasn't dealt with this kind of situation day in and day out, albeit in, in smaller scale. You know, what's amazing about this is that the press, after your best-selling book came out on Donald Trump, started scaling down coverage until they basically blacked you and your colleagues out. At the same time that there were op-eds in these same newspapers tearing into Trump like the Lincoln Project and other syndicated columnists, and it was okay with the publishers and editors. And I think part of it has to do with the language used. The minute you use psychiatric language, you know, they start comparing the situation with dissidents in the Soviet Union and how they were described instead of dissident citizens uh, disloyal to the regime and punished accordingly. But I published an op-ed in the Boston Globe trying to figure out 
why a chronic hourly liar who created totally false realities about his own record, his own performance in the business world and the political world, about what was going on in the world, I mean, total made-up fantasies, a president who in his career cheated people, lied about people, defamed people. And I'm asking the question, why do so many people support him? you got about 30% of the voting public still with him, no matter what the indictments are, the content of the indictments, his continuing line about the election, saying he won in a landslide, never mind close, so he won in a landslide in 2020. And so in this Boston Globe article, I had a composite, still loyal Trump voter. It was written with a light touch. But the voter needs to be analyzed by everybody, the voters for Trump, because without them, Trump would be a castaway. So I had 12 reasons that this composite loyal Trump voter gave to support Trump. The first one is, and I'm quoting this composite voter, quote, I have few expectations of politicians, and Trump means those I really care about. He's against abortion and gun control, selects conservative judges, favors a strong defense, and loves this country. So that, that's their expectation level. The second one was, he wants to make America great again and make America build again in America. Who can disagree with that wonderful patriotic wish? The third one is, oh, he brags all the time about himself and his businesses. That's because he believes in himself, no matter what happens to his sometimes failing companies. Believing in oneself is what my parents always taught me. To have someone believe so much in himself on national TV gives me the confidence that I need to believe in myself, end quote. And one is, quote, sure, he fibs a lot, like a lot of people, but he fibs optimistically against the dismal truth. He gives me hope that way, end quote, and on and on. So what do you think of analyzing the 30% of the voters who have no marker when it comes to Trump? He can violate all kinds of criminal laws, as he did, the Anti-Deficiency Act, the Hatch Act. He can violate the Constitution and say in public, quote, with Article 2, I can do whatever I want as president, end quote. I've had constitutional law. People say that itself is an impeachable offense. That's the declaration of a dictator. And they're still with him. Now, they would never support a friend or a neighbor who lied all the time, who had power over them, who described things that weren't real about what was going on around them or what he did in the past, who cheated his workers, they would never support. So what is this dichotomy? And where is the psychology and psychiatric profession on this? Well, I can tell you what the psychiatric profession has said since Donald Trump. Precisely, it was Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia past president of the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, who was the one who said that those who were speaking up were imitating Soviet psychiatry. Of course, the converse would be true in that those who are trying to speak the truth in a time of gaslighting and misleading and downright psychological manipulation, that speaking the truth in these times would allow people to free their minds. So one side effect that silencing mental health professionals has had is that 
people have not been able to understand the difference between informed, rational decision-making versus a product of manipulation. In fact, having their entire freedom and personality be taken away. We know that Donald Trump is not capable of rational thinking. We actually had a panel do a mental capacity assessment of him, and that's the unexamination that is important because it relates to harm to the public. And so we did it on request of many members of the public. It doesn't require a personal interview. In fact, we tried to request one and got no response. So we proceeded and had enough information, actually from the Mueller report, collateral reports by people who worked with him and knew him, that essentially he did not have the capacity to have ideologies or policies. He can't think at that level. What he can do is to manipulate psychologically those who are vulnerably predisposed and those who have formed emotional bonds with him, to have them attach themselves to him, regardless of his violations of whatever he promised in the past, despite his far from being the president for the forgotten man and forgotten woman, he's the president who has crushed the forgotten man and forgotten woman. That does not matter because he has led them to a place that is outside of reality. And this speaks to the power of the mind. The mind is flexible. It can even mold itself in ways to accept all kinds of conditions. That is why we've had Trump supporters who were going to their deathbeds from COVID and insisting that it was not COVID. It could not be because it was something that was made up to undermine his political campaign. So these are the kinds of effects that we expect from having a person with severe mental symptoms, holding an influential position, and having lots of public exposure. We do have a propagation of symptoms. Now, I've been calling this the Trump contagion, but what it really is is shared psychosis, which is a psychosocial phenomenon that's been researched and described since around the mid-19th century. And exactly what I said happens in this situation when someone with severe mental symptoms goes untreated, holds an influential position, be it in a couple's relationship, in a family or a group or a nation, it's the same dynamic, the symptoms will spread. It's not the healthy person who makes the ill person better, but rather the ill person who spreads symptoms to the point where those who were previously healthy, didn't have the symptoms, come to look as if they have the primary illness. Bandy Lee, people who are trying to understand the Trump voters, so they have legitimate grievances. They've been yes. shut out by the two parties. Wages are frozen. They have trouble getting health insurance. They are not given voice on the media, even the public media. They see public services crumbling around them. They see Absolutely. themselves ridiculed on fictional TV programs as, you know, sort of dolts or bumbling people. And Trump comes along, and in one expression by a Ohio steelworker who moved to Georgia, and he was asked by a reporter, why is he supporting Trump? And he said, you know, they say Trump is crazy, 
but he's saying what I'm thinking. Does that mean I'm crazy? That's a very insightful comment. And, of course, he's beat up on the media, and they love that. And they love the fact the media keeps publicizing him because they want to get great ratings. And they think he's pretty clever that he's beating up on the media and getting more media as a result, which isn't exactly an experience of most people. And then, of course, you know, he brags about his riches much more than he's actually rich. And that gets people to say, well, that means he can't be bought. Nobody's going to buy him. He's got his own planes and mansions, etc. And then, of course, there's this fear of immigration that he stoked, taking away jobs from people and getting social service supports for the immigrants. So, you know, there's, there's a lot there. And I think part of it is a, no small part is the default of the Democratic Party. They lost the connection with the blue-collar workers. Limbaugh took over. And Reagan developed the Reagan blue-collar worker crew. And the Democrats started going into the cultural issues and the word police back and forth. And they didn't push like FDR and Truman and others for higher minimum wages and full Medicare for all. All the things that count for people regardless of their political ideologies down where they live, work, and raise their families, where the abstract ideological manipulations are not quite as pertinent. They're really looking at the daily chores and pressures of life and trying to survive them. So I think a lot of work needs to be done in understanding these people and not simply putting them in a typology and a stereotype under the penumbra of Donald J. Trump Yes, of course. It's during times of crisis and deprivation or vast socioeconomic inequality where one becomes psychologically wounded to the point of being vulnerable to, one may call them demagogues, but they're equally developmentally wounded individuals such as Donald Trump. He happened to be the one who appeared at the time, but there are any number of such individuals in different societies, different historical times. In the psychiatric setting, we see them, it's a certain percentage, 5 to 10% of developmentally wounded individuals who, well, what's important is that we do not place them in positions of power. That is where the danger was and the exceptional dynamic was. It's not that an Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin is so rare in human history. Rather, they're quite common, but it's rare that they are elevated to positions of power. And that is what happened here. And that's why I feel that all these legitimate grievances, true conditions in society that need fixing, were instead of being fixed, exploited and psychologically exploited for political advantage. And I believe that is truly what is behind our inability to intervene with an obviously impaired president or our inability to keep him from getting to the presidency in the first place. We've been talking with Dr. Bandy Lee, formerly of Yale University, who tried to with her colleagues, raised the highlight on Donald Trump's unstable behavior, to put it euphemistically, and continues to do so, and is constantly reinforced 
and supported by the daily behavior of Donald J. Trump. Thank you very much, Dr. Lee. Thank you very much, Mr. Nader. We've been speaking with Dr. Bandy Lee. We will link to her work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. That's our show. I want to thank our guests again, Toby Heaps and Dr. Bandy Lee. For those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out now. But for you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call a wrap-up featuring Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at RalphNaderRadioHour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. We read them all. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our indefatigable associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Our guest will be journalist and author Stephen Kinzer. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Remember, try to become a Capitol Citizen. Good way. Go to CapitalCitizen.com and order a copy of this special newspaper focusing on Congress in ways the mainstream press does not. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, we continue our conversation with Toby Heaps of Corporate Nights. Tell us how you started Corporate Nights after you graduated from McGill about 23 years ago. Sure. So I was working on Bay Street, which is Canada's Wall Street, for a financial publication, trying to pay off my student debt. And the publication was called The Mutual Fund Review, owned by a company called Investment.com. It was during the dot-com days before the dot-bomb went off. And I was assigned a story on socially responsible investing. And it was a lot more interesting than just writing about which funds were going up and which funds were going down, which was kind of a bit of a boring narrative after a while. It was two balls in the air. Uh, you know, companies trying to make money, companies trying to do good. And it wasn't so simple, it wasn't so cut and dry, but it was a lot more intriguing. And I think from an early age, I understood the power of business is a lever and the necessity for business to be part of the solution if we we're going to have any chance at really tackling the major challenges facing our civilization. And so when I caught the bug of social responsible investing, I wanted to write more about it. So I went into a magazine store with my friend at the time, mentor, Peter Deploros, who was a sort of savant, could lay out magazines and write business plans and write website code. And we couldn't find any other magazines that were really on our topic, aside from a little one called Business Ethics. And so he asked me, you know, why don't we just start one? I said, well, I, you know, I don't know how to make a magazine. He said, well, I can, I can help you. And then I said, well, I don't have any money. He said, well, I can help you with the business plan. And we went to work and less than a year later, we were publishing a magazine with 100,000 circulation in Canada's Globe and Mail. And that was a little over 20 years ago. Take NVIDIA, which is the leading chip manufacturer in the artificial intelligence world. How do you evaluate that? That is now over a trillion dollar valuation. Yeah. 
I'm glad you're throwing me a question that we were looking at 7,000 companies. So I don't, I don't know the inside story on all of them, but NVIDIA, as you said, is a pretty big one. So if we're looking at a company like Google, we're looking at the percent of ad revenues that it earns from companies that are selling sustainable products and services. That's the main kind of driver. They also get some points for their energy efficient default map function that helps people get from A to B in a more fuel efficient way. So they earn, they earn a, little, a little bit of a few points there. And so for NVIDIA, I don't want to give a wrong answer, especially live on air, but I, I'm sending a note to my research department. If I can get a brief, maybe in the next 10 minutes, I'll, I'll share, it, uh, share it with you. What about Ivan Chouinard's Patagonia, which does exceed a billion dollars in sales now? Yeah, so Patagonia, great company. They are not publicly traded. And at the moment for our big ranking, we're restricted to just the publicly traded companies. There's quite good information in terms of you know their cash taxes paid. There's reporting requirements from the Securities Exchange Commission. So we do have ambition and we've received some good injections of capital recently to help pursue this to rank the 500 biggest private companies in the world, which is a, it's, it's a pretty arduous exercise because the information is disclosed in a sort of, in a really much messier fashion than it is for publicly traded companies. And even for publicly traded companies, especially on the sustainability information, getting much better. There's a bit of a sort of the International Accounting Standards Board is bringing everything under one umbrella. So over the course of the next decade, we'll start to see similar regimes of clarity and which exists for financial reporting, but really difficult mm-hmm. to rank private companies. Patagonia would, would clearly, if they were publicly traded, they would be on the ranking and mm-hmm. a billion for sure. For sure. Listeners, I must wonder how massive your staff is. And you actually have organized corporate nights in the data collection in a very creative way with connections with groups all over the world who collect data and mutual exchange of data. And your staff isn't that large. So how do you organize this massive, constant input of data and putting it in understandable terms and then publicizing it? How many staff do you have? So we've built up our staff and our processes. We're now at 20 and we were at, a few years ago, we were at 10. And our people are really good people. You know, the space we're in, the sustainability ESG research space is a really hot space. And we're not paying as much as the big banks um, as they could make, but we're paying good value and, and there's options. And we've got great people, PhDs, masters, who are really, really inspired by this opportunity to create a new language for a sustainable economy and really inspired by the purity of the mission to really identify who's doing the best job. And then we work with these groups. We've developed relationships with these groups around the world, You know, whether it's Know the Chain out of DC that collates satellite information to see who's doing deforestation and then picks out the companies that are really doing egregious stuff, provides them to us, or Influence Map, which has 60 people around the world, which track the major corporations and what they're doing to influence bolder or, or weaker climate policy and grades them and documents it in quite fine detail. And those are just sort of two of the sort of 24 red flags that we're doing. And then we synthesize data from, from many different sources, from Thomson Reuters Refinitive Terminals, from the annual reports from companies. Increasingly, we're using artificial intelligence to help save time to get raw information. But we always have humans making decisions because the artificial intelligence is, can't match the uh, human stupidity or natural stupidity, just the way things are put together. So some people think it's, it's going to solve all our problems, but definitely not with uh, sustainability research yet. And, and so we're using, we're using all those resources and we synthesized the research when we calculated it of about 1,500 people from these various groups that we use and then we, we put into our machine. And we have a portal that we run on Microsoft Azure that is accessible to all the 6,000 companies that we rate so they can verify and challenge our data. And we have a good process to review their objections and we don't always agree with them, but it, it helps to build trust and also helps us to get more data than sometimes is, is available in, in the traditional channels. 
I keep reading the business pages of the leading newspapers, and I haven't seen a profile of corporate knights in you, at least to my knowledge, in the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Has there been a profile in Bloomberg Business Week? Yeah, we don't really, we don't even have a corporate nights for a media company, but we don't have like a communications person on staff or we don't really kind of toot our horn too much. I guess we do. I mean, some people find us like the Prince of Wales when he was Prince found us and he wanted to give an award to companies that were doing the best globally on sustainability. And so he asked me to help him do it in a way that would pass muster and would not embarrass him and would be legitimate. And he could ask anybody. So we, we helped him out with that. So we do things like that, but people don't know it's us. They, you know, it gets a lot of attention on the king or the prince. And we've done things where we powered Newsweek screen rankings in previous years. And so we, we do things, but we usually kind of are a little bit in the background. And a lot of the biggest things that we've been able to move the needle on, kind of getting going, the movement for making investors responsible for the impacts of their investments, especially on climate and carbon emissions. We played a fairly pivotal role getting the initial pledge together and signing it up and running it before we handed it off to the UN. And you know, most people, you have to dig to find that stuff out. But I found actually, and this is kind of interesting, and I guess you, you in your work, Ralph, you, many times I've seen this happen too, although you know, you're, you're, you're a household name, I found that you can often get more impact if you're willing to trade credit and give the credit to others and not sort of look for any of the light. And sometimes it's good to have the credit because then you have more legitimacy to use that in a bit of a pulpit as well. But we've been able to get a fair bit of impact but I think we're only scratching the surface. Like we're only done 2% of what we can do in the next five or 10 years. In the last 20 years, only 2% has happened, 98% is to happen. So maybe we should be a little bit more conscious about telling our story. And so this, this is a great example here. So appreciate it. Thank you. Steve? Toby, is corporate culture universal or does it really vary from country to country? In other words, do certain countries have systems that encourage social responsibility? Yeah, I thought about this question a lot. And the corporate culture is markedly different. Of course, you know, there's globalization going on, but you look at a country like Denmark, 5 million people, they have the number one offshore wind producer in the world, Orsted. They have the number one onshore wind producer in the world, Vestas. You look at heat pumps, you look at beer, you look at shipping, everywhere there, you're showing up as number one or number two company in the world. And this is like a little, little economy, 5 million people. And what's really interesting about what Denmark has done at the public side, First of all, they have a corporate culture where they all talk and they kind of stay in touch and support each other. And they tend to be fairly gregarious and willing to bet on a better future, which is, I think, about half of the battle if you're willing to bet on the better future. But they've done something at a policy level that's super interesting. When you look at the rich countries, the OECD countries, and you look at the proportion of GDP that is invested in public training, every training programs, Denmark is the highest. And what that means is if you're in a career and you want to sort of step out or you're not taking an existential risk. There's public programs that will help retrain you. You can go from working in a coal power plant to learning how to be a, a wind turbine technician. And I think it makes the workforce much more resilient and adaptable. And it also enables a lot of the times the key gap in making a rapid transition economically is, is the workforce that ends up being a bit of a bottleneck. And they're able to retool and retrain much faster because they have a scale of public investment that goes into training. They invest, you know, almost 10 times more than Canada does on a percentage of GDP. I would guess it's a similar story for the US in training. So it's it's a significant you know order of magnitude higher. And when you look at their economy and how it's thriving and in all these growth industries where they're really kind of owning the primary piece of market share on the number one company, it's pretty interesting. I think it, I think if I could point to one thing, it's the emphasis on sort of reinvention and on public support for humans to acquire new skills. Anna? Thank you, Toby. You mentioned that 
that Corporate Knights is working on an index for privately held companies. Do you have indexes for other entities like nonprofits or cities or municipalities? And and um, if not, do you know if anyone else has has those indexes? Yeah, we we have quite a few rankings. Um, if you go to corporatenights.com, you sort of see the rankings. But some of the other major ones we do, we're looking to sort of rank major entities that can move the needle on sustainability. So one thing that might not be obvious in that realm is MBA programs. So we've been ranking business schools on how they integrate sustainability. We now look at two criteria, what percent of their core courses are are fully focused or not fully, are, are integrating sustainable development principles into the uh, curriculum and is an input. And then as an output, we look at what percent of their most two recent years alumni are working for impact organizations. And we have a definition that goes into the uh, detail what qualifies their B Corps, companies that make the majority of their revenue from sustainable products and services, nonprofits, ministries of environment and labor and those sorts of things. And so does that get at your question? Mostly, I guess, I mean, I guess if other things we have beyond the MBAs are the national rankings, the best 50 corporate citizens in Canada, and I guess the most sustainable cities index. So that's an annual index. It's based on really good information. We're ranking cities, over 70 cities around the world, major cities on how they're doing for people and planet. And that that comes out each year. We do something called the Earth Index, which is a ranking of the say-do gap by G20 nations. So we're looking at what countries have set in terms of how much emissions they're going to reduce. And then we convert that to an annual emissions reductions required to meet that goal by the 2030 target in most cases. And then we look at how many emissions were actually reduced by sector and at the economy level and compare that against what, what was set. And we find there's often a large say-do gap. Some countries are able to close it better than others. And it puts a bit of an accountability lens on what countries are saying and what they're actually doing. Uh, so those are some of the major ones we do, the, the Future 50 ranking I mentioned earlier of the sort of smaller companies. And there's, we, there's a few others. Yeah. Kobe, before we close, I'm intrigued. Do you, how do you evaluate insurance companies? Property casualty, health insurance, life yeah. insurance. Do you take into account loss prevention activities? It's yes. a different breed. How do you evaluate them? Yep. So insurance companies, we look at the two primary things we look at for the insurance companies is we look at the percent, because the way the insurance company makes money is two ways. They make money from their insurance premiums and they make money from their general account. So when you pay your insurance premium, they take that money and invest it somewhere and then they make returns. Most insurance companies actually make more money by investing than they do make from the premiums. And so they become sort of like investment managers. So on the premium side, any premiums that are earned from products or services that have a sort of material consideration and impact on more sustainable behavior, whether it's safer driving, if it's insurance for electric cars that's reduced or for people that have cheaper health insurance that have healthier lifestyles or are introducing more plant protein into their diets. In some cases, there's privacy issues for how they verify all this stuff, but we consider that a sustainable insurance premium income and that, that counts. There's a lot of things with the, the property casualty now where we're looking at insurance incentives for buildings to put in place flood protection mechanisms where there's a, a significant premium reduction when they're doing that and encouraging people to be more resilient for the floods that are that are kind of coming our way. And then when we look at the general account, these insurance companies have together trillions of dollars of investments that are, you know, combined over 15 trillion, 20 trillion globally of investments. We look at what percent of their investments are in sustainable activities and services, whether it's green real estate or green energy or sustainable agriculture. And then we derive their uh, investment income from that. And it's interesting. You see some insurance companies, some huge ones like Sun Life, 
you're making multi-billion dollar commitments and allocations into to expanding the green grid in the US. And on the real estate side, retro, doing major significant retrofits to electrify building stock and, and install heat pumps. And so insurance companies can really move the needle both with their investments and also, as you pointed out, on, on the premiums by tweaking things and giving people an incentive to make more sustainable decisions that, that also reduce the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the risk. And now we continue our conversation with Dr. Bandy Lee. Well, he's also appealed to people who cannot be excused. He's brought the worst out of some of the violent extremists around the country who never dared go into the public arena until Trump championed their cause with dog whistles and other encouragements, which I'm sure played a role in the January 6th assault on Congress. The Mother Jones article quotes a survey by a pretty respected academic, Robert Pape, P-A-P-E, and he extrapolates from a recent survey conducted that nearly 50 million American adults believe the 2020 election was stolen, and 21 million, about one-third of whom own guns, believe force would be justified to restore Trump to the Oval Office. I'm quoting from uh, the Mother Jones piece. So there's no doubt that he has brought out the worst in some of the worst people who really do not believe in a deliberative democracy, and they're willing to go into the streets and prove the point. And he's also said before the 2020 election that if he's defeated, there are going to be riots in the streets. So he is an inciter of violence, which I don't think a vast majority of his supporters would share and concur with. But it doesn't need a large numbers of people to throw a country into turmoil. And he's often talked about the possibility of civil war. And he's brought the worst out of the Republican Party itself and its elected representatives. I've never seen in Congress more extreme, ignorant people operating on fantasies. Over 120 Republicans supported Trump the day after January 6th in the House of Representatives. So we're dealing here with a contagion, which is a phrase that some people in your profession use. And the only way out, I see, is to have alternatives. They've got to have clear alternatives by the political and economic system saying that they're going to have a better life for their families, for their children, for their communities. And that could be thrown up against the wall by the corporate supremacists and the political officials who are their toadies. Don't you think that your profession should talk more about institutional insanity, not just individual mental health problems, but the way the Pentagon demands more and more money and the members of Congress give them more money than the generals ask for, and it's draining public budgets to confront the necessities of people here in America, health, safety, life-saving necessities? Do you ever think of doing more analysis of such dysfunctional institutions that they can be called institutionally insane. Yes, absolutely. One of the reasons why I started speaking up was not because of Donald Trump as an individual, but because he posed and reflected a public mental health problem. And I have always stated that he was a public health problem. That was our interest, not him as an individual. And indeed, when psychological weapons such as he are being used by the institution, by a political party, by those in power who would like to distract 
the public and make the public incapable of recognizing where the true societal problems are, then they will have succeeded. So in my view, in a democracy, it is essential that the public have access to information, that the public have access to relevant expertise. And in this situation, it was mental health and psychiatry. And psychiatry is not confined to individual treatment. I have been working in public health my entire career. I've worked alongside sociologists, political scientists, anthropologists, and consulting for the World Health Organization. And this is a situation where we all need to get together. It is, in fact, not only absurd, but dangerous that psychiatrists and mental health professionals have been blocked from public discourse. It was not always this way. Three months since the publication of our book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump in 2017, it was an unexpected instant New York Times bestseller. And within three months, we were the number one topic of national conversation. That was when Jeffrey Lieberman and the American Psychiatric Association came out and said that speaking in public was unethical, that there was the so-called Goldwater rule that prohibited speaking about public figures. Well, actually, the Goldwater rule falls under our societal responsibility. They forgot the actual mandate that all psychiatrists and physicians have, that we not only have a responsibility to our private patients, but we have a responsibility to society just as much. And it was in the context of educating the public on matters that matter, on matters that are of relevance to public health and safety, that we should be careful not to diagnose public figures. That was the original Goldwater rule, which they distorted into a gag order. And that is the position they chose, which I'm terribly disappointed about. The American Psychiatric Association had held up even during the pressures of the Bush administration when the American Psychological Association gave in and took part in assisting with torture. But the Psychiatric Association hadn't. But in the Trump era, they truly made an error by silencing the relevant professionals who might have prevented all the subsequent calamities that happened. Because in the very beginning of the administration, we were invited to Congress constantly to discuss the 25th Amendment. And the drafter of the 25th Amendment had always said that he meant it to be driven by data, by medical data, not by the cabinet or the vice president, whom he considered to come last. You know, it's not like your sentiments are not shared by establishment people. Former respected Judge J. Michael Luttig, the L-U-T-T-I-G, a Republican, called Trump, quote, a clear and present danger to democracy, end quote. You have this idea that if the indictments result in convictions, that Trump will lose quite a few of his supporters. Explain that. I believe not at this time. It might have been true immediately after January 6th, but I warned that if the indictment did not come soon, that his even sedition and treason would be normalized and be seen in the opposite view. And that is what has happened. I also warned that election alone would not be enough in 2020, that there had to be proper intervention 
or else he would remain president. And in the minds of many, he still is. And that is why it was critical for people in the mental health profession who are used to dealing with such individuals. Day in and day out, there are many, many such individuals roaming our streets and in our jails and prisons, but they are not such a grave danger to the public because they are kept in check. Well, we're out of time, Vandy. What are you doing now, by the way? Are you being blacklisted by other universities because of what happened at Yale? I have learned to become much more independent. I've never seen myself as anyone other than a clinician and an academic. But given that the needs of our society at this time go far beyond the scope of those areas and perhaps institutions themselves, including academic institutions. So I am working rather independently. And right now I'm not doing very much publicly, but I am building up some plans, one might say. Let me leave my website, which is bandylee.com, B-A-N-D-Y-L-E-E.com, where people can subscribe to my Substack, which indeed talks about societal mental health and how we can help our own safety as well as well-being. Well, let's go to Steve and Hannah. Dr. Lee is not just working as an academic. She's worked with prison. She's worked with people in prison. She's worked with street gangs. She understands what's going on at the ground level in many dimensions. Steve? Yes, thanks, Ralph. Dr. Lee, if, if you'll indulge me, can we do a little role play here where I am Donald Trump and I'm your patient and we're in a session and I say to you, Dr. Lee, everybody's getting down on me. I made this phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State and I said, I need you to find me 11,780 votes, which is one more than I have. And nobody at the time said, hey, Mr. President, that's inappropriate. Nobody told me that was wrong. So how could that be wrong? Why are they getting down on me? So I would not confront him. I would actually go along. Yes. Tell me more about what they're not doing for you. And what do you think will, this will achieve? And then once he relates to me his intentions, I would warn the appropriate authorities because it's always, it's always a responsibility of a psychiatrist to relate information that could be a danger to other individuals or the public. And in this case, even without an interview of the president, we detected that there were signs of grave danger because of psychological reasons based on publicly available information combined with decades of clinical experience and century of research information we could deduce that this president will be dangerous. And the more impaired he is, the more predictable his behavior will be. And therefore, it was, it was important to intervene. In fact, mental health professionals intervene all the time when an individual is declining and about to become a danger to self, others, or the public. Anna? Thank you. Dr. Lee, if we operate from the assumption that we can't control anyone else's actions. We can only control our own. And let's just, for the sake of argument, decide I have no impact on what Donald Trump is going to do. I cannot make him change his mind. If we remove Donald Trump's decision making from the equation and just focus on what we can do to 
respond differently, to limit his power, to limit his capacity to do harm, just like with people in our personal lives. If we're dealing with an abusive boss or a narcissist in our lives, what strategies could we employ and could the media employ to kind of let him do whatever he wants, but limit the capacity for harm? Well, there's very little we can do with him other than for work with law enforcement and maybe one day we'll have psychiatric interventions in place, including a president. Uh, the first citizen is not supposed to be exempt from standards of medical standards of care, but in this case he was. But the true intervention is for the media outlets to invite mental health experts in this situation because the situation is truly gravely dangerous and far gone to the point where we do need professionals. And to have an informed public would vastly strengthen us. Knowledge is power. And then alongside that, I express over and over in my profile of a nation, Trump's mind, America's soul, that the true intervention is to reduce the conditions in society that gave rise to such a president in the first place. And that is to work on the media themselves, occultic programming, as well as the socioeconomic inequality that has given rise to the psychological vulnerabilities that are manifesting right now that would predispose us to a demagogic figure. And then- um, The way the Democrats supported all these free trade agreements, which exported millions of jobs to autocratic regimes overseas who knew how to put workers in their place and hollowed out entire communities and then just said to the workers who were asking for help, oh, that's free trade. We'll all benefit. It's a win-win operation with foreign countries. Well, workers saw their hollowed out communities, unemployment, and the desperate need to support their families as a failure of the Democratic Party. And the Republicans, like Trump, swooped in. Not that he didn't think about it, but they swooped in and exploited it mercilessly. Yes, so indeed. I had been worrying about a figure such as Donald Trump, not with his campaign, but at least two decades prior because of the conditions that were being put in place in society and the rhetoric that was happening, even with Fox News, and conditioning the population to essentially vote against their own interests and to be made ill-informed about the psychological tactics that are being used against them so that they would not know what is being done to their minds. And now here's Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. United Auto Workers Union is on strike against the big three automakers. Just before the strike began, the Lever reported that General Motors claimed the union's demands, quote, would threaten our ability to do what's right for the long-term benefit of the team, end quote. Yet, for all their crying poverty, the big three, quote, have reported $21 billion in profits in just the first six months of 2023 and, quote, have authorized $5 billion in stock buybacks, end quote. The union strategy is also worth touching on, as it is novel for this industry. Instead of all workers going on strike at once, the union plans on, quote, targeting a trio of strategic factories while keeping 90% of its members working under expired contracts, 
end quote, for Axios. However, the story notes the ways industry plans to strike back, notably by utilizing quasi-lockouts at active plants. In an eye-unprecedented shot across the bow, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit has issued a, quote, writ of body attachment, directing the United States Marshal Service to take two corporate officials of Haven, Salon, and Spa in Muskego, Wisconsin, into custody after they repeatedly failed and refused to comply with an enforced National Labor Relations Board order, end quote. This followed years of opportunities for the corporate officials to settle this dispute and represents the strongest signal so far that the re-energized NLRB will use every weapon in its legal arsenal to protect workers. The board's full statement is available at nlrb.gov. The Washington Post reports that since retaking power in Afghanistan, the Taliban has, quote, all but extinguished al-Qaeda, end quote. Yet, buried within the story is a much more intriguing tidbit. According to this piece, quote, the CIA shares counterterrorism information with the Taliban, end quote, per a senior Biden administration official. This official emphasized that this does not include, quote, targeting data or actionable intelligence, end quote, raising the question of what information exactly the CIA is passing along to the Taliban. In Maine, voters are set to decide on a proposal to, quote, turn the state's two big private electric companies, Central Maine Power and Versant, into pine tree power, a nonprofit, publicly run utility, end quote, per Bill McKibben in The Nation. McKibben points out that the private utility companies, quote, sent $187 million in profits out of Maine last year, much of it to shareholders in such far-flung places as Qatar, Norway, and Canada, end quote. Moreover, this move could lower rates by, quote, an average of $367 per household per year, end quote. Bernie Sanders has endorsed this effort, declaring, quote, power belongs in the hands of the people, not greedy corporations. In an effort to combat food deserts, Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson has announced the city will explore the possibility of opening a municipally-owned grocery store. The announcement highlighted that, quote, historic disinvestment has led to inequitable access to food retail across Chicago, which have been exacerbated as at least six grocery stores closed on the south and west sides over the past two years, end quote. This project would seek to provide healthy food for south and west side residents, as well as an economic anchor in these communities. From Variety, the California Senate has passed a bill to, quote, grant unemployment benefits to workers who are on strike, end quote, in a major win for the Writers Guild, SAG-AFTRA, and organized labor more generally. If signed, this will go into effect on January 1st, 2024. Currently, only New York and New Jersey offer the safety net to striking workers. A story in L.A. Public Press traces the disturbing rise of so-called tenant relocators. According to the story, quote, lawmakers, tenants, and tenant groups say that, across Los Angeles, landlords are buying rent-controlled buildings predominantly occupied by immigrants and using illegal tenant harassment to force people out so they can re-rent their units at market rate, end quote. Further, quote, organizers say tenant harassment is so profitable that it has become an industry in its own right, and that the industry has spawned a profession, the tenant relocator, who cajoles or threatens tenants into leaving while their building falls to pieces around them, end quote. This is yet another case showing the stunning lengths the rich will go to in order to acquire more wealth. In Atlanta, 
Over 115,000 signatures have been collected and submitted, calling for a referendum on the Cop City project. Yet, when these signatures were submitted, the clerk's office refused to accept them, setting obscure deadline rules. Now, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock is weighing in with a letter to Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, urging the city to, quote, err on the side of giving people the ability to express their views, and quote, the Atlanta Voice reports. This contentious project will likely continue to be a political flashpoint going forward. Arundhati Roy, the world-famous Indian dissident writer, received a major European essay prize on September 12th. She used this opportunity to deliver an explosive speech warning of the danger posed to the world by, quote, the dismantling of democracy in India, end quote. Roy is explicit in naming, quote, India's descent into first majoritarianism and then full-blown fascism, end quote, and goes into gut-churning detail concerning the plight of religious minorities in what used to be called the world's largest democracy. The full speech is available on YouTube. Finally, Yahoo News reports that back in 2015, quote, Elon Musk stormed into the Tesla office, furious that Autopilot tried to kill him. End quote. Taken from the new blockbuster biography of the tech magnate, the story goes on to say that the Tesla Autopilot, quote, thrown off by the road's faded lane lines, end quote, steered into and almost hit oncoming traffic. This, the book argues, was due to Musk's insistence on removing light detection and ranging technology, better known as LIDAR, from his vehicles in an attempt to cut costs. Ultimately, the autopilot was not actually fixed. Instead, Musk's chief of staff, Sam Teller, got the faded lane lines repainted. That may be a functional solution for the world's richest man, but personally, I wouldn't take my chances. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long.